Support for the Claim of Stories podcast and the following message comes from 99designs by Vistaprint. With a worldwide community of more than 150,000 talented freelance designers, 99designs by Vistaprint is the global creative platform that makes it easy for small businesses to work with creative experts and build their brand through custom, memorable design. Learn more at vistaprint.com. Here you are, you know, this character, this young man, wasn't a suit with him. But um, to put him in a strong shoulder wouldn't really make sense. He didn't even really, at the time, you know, didn't even have the posture for a strong shoulder. So in order to really kind of, you know, give him something that felt very relaxed, Mm. I kind of went after that Italian shoulder, Mm. that soft shoulder. So just understanding, knowing all those nuances, I approached it in that way, you know, from a clinical place. Mm -hmm. How do I allow him to still feel swagged out? but still have this suited, you know, um, baller kind of look. Right. We, you know, he had the scarf around his neck, and the shirt was open. It was very kind of Italian mob boss. <laughs> this is Claim of Stories, a show about leading and emerging BIPOC creatives and how they were able to claim their dream careers. Tell me where you want to go, where you want to be. I can help you claim a seat, get you on your feet. Tell me where you want to go, where you want to be. I can help you claim a seat, yeah. I'm Bima, and on today's show, we talk to stylist and hip-hop fashion icon, June Ambrose, the mind behind some of hip-hop's most iconic looks from Jay-Z to Missy Elliott. Born in Antigua and raised in the South Bronx, June grew up as a latchkey kid whose creativity and entrepreneurial spirit was unmatched at a very early age. Despite living in the rough Bronx in the 70s and 80s, her mother made sure she got her chance to see as many different experiences as she possibly could, from her aunt working at CBS Studios to being a product of the Fresh Air Fund program. A student at a performing arts high school, she studied theater, and when she wasn't on the stage, she learned how to tell stories through costume design. June always used fashion as a way to express herself and a way to hide her teenage insecurities. With a flair for style, a winning smile, and a sharp personality, June took advantage of every opportunity that came her way. After high school, she worked at an investment firm as a researcher, and although the money was great, she was bored to tears. Leaving that to intern at a record label in the marketing department and thinking like a costume designer, when the opportunity came to style a young artist, she raised her hand with no experience, just a love of fashion and gumption. She learned on the job, learning how to work with fashion houses, budgets, and learning how to style for the camera as opposed to the stage. June was starting to figure out how to give hip-hop a voice through fashion. In our conversation ahead, June shares a story about growing up hearing gunshots and living in a single-parent home. Well, the Bronx uh, in the 70s and the 80s, well, 80s really was like Iraq. Mm. You know, you couldn't differentiate um, a gunshot from firecrackers. And my sister and I were latchkey kids because I was raised in a single-parent home. My mom, you know, divorced my dad. And when we lived in St. Croix, and I came from St. Croix when I was three years old, mm-hmm. born in Antigua, West Indies, went to St. Croix. My um, my mom had an older sister who was very ill, and she um, passed away, and my mom laid her to rest. She divorced my dad and came to New York and started her life over. And, you know, she had to find work, and when she found work, you know, our jobs were to go to school, was to go to school and lock the door behind us when we got home. So right. that she knew that we were safe. And um, 
it was interesting because you realize you, how creative you are when you don't have a lot mm. and, and how you quantify wealth. Mm. Like I never felt unsafe. I never felt unloved. I felt there was nothing that I didn't want for, you know, mm -hmm. everything we wanted, we had. And, you know, whether my mother was putting it on layaway or whether, you know, it was just, we had enough. And I always say, you know, wealth is measured in so many different ways. And because of the environment that she created, not the environment in which we lived in, because we didn't have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. That's what that's what felt really wealthy and, and rich because it was consistent. Um, it was from a pure place. It was never compromised. And, you know, my mom had never dated after she uh, divorced my dad. I was going to so ask never, you what that was. Another, what that's never like. another man in the yeah, house. Yeah, so you just, you it know, you, just, you, you're, you're, your childhood and your upbringing in that household did you ever feel like, did you ever notice an absence of a male presence? No, mm. I didn't. It was, I mean, now that I'm, you know, raising two kids with a man, it's, you know, and a father and, and a partner, it's, you, I, I sent, I sometimes, you know, reflect back and I have these sense memories and I've realized, oh, I see now what could have been, but you don't miss what you don't have, you You're know? Right. So it was like, I can only now sit and admire, admire like, you know, the the, you know, the experience that my kids are having mm -hmm. and how beautiful that is, mm -hmm. and the dynamic of co-parenting. That's mm -hmm. like I didn't see that. My mom was my mother and my father. Right. And you know, our fire escape was our backyard, our mm -hmm. porch, because mm -hmm. I grew up in a one-bedroom tenement. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I said. Um, my mother was the Statue of Liberty because every West Indian in the family that came to America, they docked at our one-bedroom apartment. We gave them a place to lay their head of refuge until they got their paperwork together, they got themselves settled, got their own apartment. Everyone got an apartment in the building, you know, so this building became kind of like the Antiguan. It was family, <laughs> yeah. My aunts were on the other side. It was two sides of the building. And again, having so much family around was also very helpful. You know, my aunts would, would were really helpful with my mom. She has lots of siblings. So there was, you know, when she worked late, they would cook and stuff. So, but I just remember the creativity that I had growing up was unmatched because we didn't have any distraction of technology. Mm -mm, mm -mm. There were board games. I was designing doll clothes for my doll. I was on my fire escape with my, <laughs> you know, opening up a store and selling clothes through the fence. Um, Wait, know, you were selling clothes through the fence? What, oh, like, what yeah, were you I selling? I was an entrepreneur from a very young age. <laughs> I would make like bags out of crepe paper, out of construction paper. I would, you know, design little envelopes for the pencils and any scrap fabric that I had. I would just like make little satchel pocketbooks and hand stitch <laughs> stuff. And I don't know. I just found, and then I have a fake register and fake money. And you were just and, like you were just doing your thing. Where did? Where and did that's you, where my play dates took place. Ah, uh, um, you okay. know, through because I couldn't leave the house. You couldn't leave the house. You, you know, had to do we that. We sit there. out front of the building. Yeah, it was you know it was it wasn't safe. Mm. And um, but you know I didn't feel like I I had a I didn't feel like I had this like challenging life. I wasn't bitter. Mm -hmm. You know, it was mm -hmm. great. It's just what you knew as a child. You didn't you didn't yeah. know any different, right? When you think about kind of that that entrepreneur um, uh, habit or that ambition that you you started to have, 
Where'd you see that before? Had you seen that before? Oh. Or like, what, where'd that come yeah, from? Of course, every West Indian's an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you're from the Caribbean, it's like, well, in the islands, my mom had a store in, in town, a general store, mm-hmm. and she um, would make Carnival Queens, you know, their costumes. She would go over to Puerto Rico to shop, you know, for clothes for the, you know, for the, for the store. It was like one of those stores that sold everything, mm-hmm. whether she was making tarts, whatever. But like everyone had their own business, whether you had a cart that was in town and you were selling mangoes and coconut or icy or whatever. That's how, you know, whether it was farm to table, you were selling stuff off the tree in the backyard. Um, and it wasn't until I went back to Antigua, maybe 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I realized, oh my goodness, this is where my entrepreneurial spirit huh. came from. Just kind of walking, because I was too young to really see it then. Right, you kind of just soaked it in. Well, it was like there yeah. in the subconscious. Yeah, and just like walking through town. I mean, I had went back, I used to go back for vacations and stuff and carnival and stuff. But it was interesting that I had, you know, like I, now I'm in my, like my 30s and I'm seeing all this and I'm like, oh wow, this is, this is where it's from. Just <laughs> seeing the people and how they were, they had so much pride and they were so hardworking, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, again, wealth was measured so differently. Different, like when right. we were in the Caribbean, we had people to help us and servants and stuff. We came to America, we had none of that, you mm. know. Mm. But it didn't feel any different. Wow, wow. I mean, it, I think it's also incredible that you're able to have a lot of family. You know, although you, you know, you'd grown up in kind of initially when you were there in the Bronx, you'd grown up in different circumstances, but as more and more family came through, I have to imagine that that probably felt pretty great to, you know, just be able to have access to trust at, at and times, familiar people. <laughs> or at sometimes times, too you know, much. The space was small. We were like, how long are you going to stay? Like, you hmm. know, we, <laughs> we'd be like, okay. How big, how, how big are we talking in this, this space, square footage? Well, uh, one bedroom was maybe like 550 square feet. My Ooh. mom lived in the living room. It wasn't a lot. Mm. 600 square feet the most. Mm. And small. so at any one given bedroom, time, one bathroom. How many people you know? you'd say? Like, a, you know, give me a picture of like five, five people and 500 square feet. At, at no more than five. So you may get one aunt that comes in. So it's now it's four of us. Mm-hmm. Or you may get an aunt and a, a sibling, you know, and their kid that came in. Um, but mainly they came one at a time. <laughs> every now and then it was like a little person attached. Right, 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 right. Tell me about um, tell me about like high school, right? Like what what were you like in high school? Were you had the fashion and entrepreneurship kind of carried over into that? Like what? Oh man, what, what's, well, what's June like? I went to a performing arts high school, so um, I was over the top. You know, I <laughs> <laughs> over the top. <laughs> I was a theater. I was a theater major, musical theater minor, and. Um, I grew up in the Bronx, but I went to high school in Manhattan, so that was a huge deal. Wow. And my mom used to always um, bring us to the city. My aunt worked at CBS studio, so she would always bring us outside of our neighborhood to see the rest of mm-hmm. New York, and that was very important. So we got to see the other parts, and I think it's so important that kids that are growing up in outside of, you know, that are growing up in the inner cities get out of their environments and they have the right. experience. Like one summer, um, I went. I went away to Nunday, New York for two weeks to stay with a fresh year family. So, you know, the fresh year fund was, is an organization that's been around for over 150 years. I'm now sitting on the board of that foundation of that organization. But that experience of taking me outside of my community and neighborhood and, you know, having me experience farm life and being, 
and spending becoming part of a white family, mm-hmm. you know, family <laughs> for two weeks. I had brothers and a father and a sister, you know, and sisters, and and you become part of their family for two weeks. Wow! It was life changing. It was it was such an experience, and it's it's what the world should look like, right? Mm. It's how we should see color. Mm-hmm. And I remember my experience with them. It wasn't about color. It was about this really sweet young girl that they got to have in their home and show her how to milk a cow and make venison sausage and make jam. (laughs) I mean, every time I talk about it, I smile. Yeah. Um, What an incredible experience because, uh, you know, otherwise, right, like you wouldn't even know that existed, wouldn't be able to be in your life right now, right? The fact that you're able to sit on the board. Yeah. And probably bring Um, other young people. One of the first alumni to to serve on the board. So it's a huge deal. Yeah, totally. And so you're commuting into the city, right, in in Manhattan, going, going to school. And you saying you were, tell me about you being over the top. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, theater majors were, I didn't have the best skin to have a skin issue. So <laughs> I used to literally wear my hair in my face or I would find <laughs> things to glamouflage and distract you from looking at my imperfections. Mm. And, you know, I, I, again, my personality was really what was going for me. I would, you know, in the moments of not feeling that beautiful and pretty, I recognized that I had another really beautiful asset, and that was my personality. Mm. And and I put that to work. And, you know, I was quite eccentric. I used to wear, like, you know, Holoquin stockings, like one white leg. I would take a, two pair of tights, and I would cut them down the middle and do one leg, one leg black, <laughs> one leg white. I would put, like, dog bones in my hair and long ponytails <laughs> and, you know, dress like Apollonia and Michael Jackson. And, yeah. You know, I was just eccentric. You know, it was like, I thought I was fame. And then, um, you know, as a theater major, if you didn't get the the part, you had to pick an elective, whether mm. it was lighting, whether mm-hmm. it was To help managing. out with the production. And I, yeah, and I picked costume design. So costume wow. design became my elective. And so whenever I wouldn't get the role that I wanted, I was in the costume design department. And I would, you know, design the pieces, which was great. It was mm. a great skill set to have because you really understand the character development, how important it is to, you know, speak to the character. So when I was playing the character, I knew how to talk to my costumer. Mm. When I was a costumer, I knew how to develop that character, Mm. make it true to who it was. And all of that started to play in later in life as I became who I am. Absolutely. Um, But high school was probably one of the most um, joyful times because (laughs) I was like, I was class president, I graduated salutatorian. I was, you know, I was oh, wow. school president <laughs> by, the, by my senior year. I was like this with my principal, fingers fingers and toes crossed. Yeah. Like, so any opportunities that came through, you know, the school, I was in the office. I would get, you know, I would hear about them. I would of course. be able to take advantage of them. You're the best of the so best. <laughs> I always tell people, you know, you got to, you got you know, Take advantage of every opportunity. You never know what's happening around you. Mm-hmm. You know, osmosis, osmosis. I always tell my kids, pay attention because oh there's God. opportunity in every little thing. Uh, every little thing, right? And it's sometimes yeah. the things that we overlook. I mean, the quote is, is usually what's right in front of you, right? Um, yes. And we, we typically overlook that. Now, when you think about that introduction into costume design, do you feel like you just innately connected with it? Like, was it just natural? Like, what was that? What do you remember about kind of those moments? Yeah, it, it was very natural for me because, for one, um, I enjoyed understanding 
character, how important character was and、mm -hmm. how important and, and the concept of that character evolving or conveying a message、mm -hmm. and being able to speak through visual tools. That was like, if you know, I always looked at fashion like it was mute and I knew style gave it the voice. So that experience was very rewarding.、Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and just, you know, the importance of it. Right. You know,、um, how it gave everything context. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So,、um, costume designing for me made sense because I used to cut up my grandmother's curtains and make doll dresses for my Barbie dolls and <laughs> get in trouble because you know, my mother would have to end up paying for them and stuff like that. I was going to ask, was like, like, you just going around the house cutting up curtains? Oh, I was a mess. <laughs> and like starting off with little corners at the bottom. <laughs> You know, I loved a lot of attention. I was so, I was a very spoiled little girl. <laughs> and my older sister would tell you, oh, June gets everything she wants. You know, like <laughs> I was just, because I was a baby. I'm, yeah, I'm a mean, baby. Yeah. Everyone loves the baby of the family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, so after you leave high school, you go into to university or you try to go, to go into school. Was that an option? Like if that was understood because of like what all you achieved、um, in high school and in performing arts, was that you were going to continue your education or was it like? Well, the idea、course? was to. <laughs> in theory, in the theory. idea was to go and continue my education.、Mm -hmm. But I, had, I was getting such an education, you know, like. I felt like academically I had like peaked. And I know that sounds、mm. really strange.、Um, I was just like, how much more do I need to do what I want to do in the, in, in the arts academically? Because you had already and, determined that that's what you, where you wanted to go. Well, interesting enough, I took a job at a, an investment banking firm、um, in the research department. <laughs> that is and, so opposite. <laughs> right? So it was either do something in, a, in an environment where you're going to learn something or go to college. So that basically became my elective.、Mm. Right?、Mm -hmm. So, and、I've, I don't think I've ever said this in any interview I've ever done. And it, I just had an aha moment. It was the elective because it wasn't anything I was passionate about. It was a job,、oh. it wasn't a career.、Mm -hmm. um, but it was so much that I had to learn from that environment, so much I did learn、mm -hmm. about myself, about business, about investments. About how important research is, how important you know, portfolios and understanding what you're investing in in long term, how something may seem like it's nothing initially, and you know, <laughs> long term、time. it becomes, yeah, because you have the context, right?、Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I'm investing in, I'm buying into this. So at the time, nothing was computerized. So all of the brokers on the floors would come into my department. I was put in charge of, the, I, was、like、a, I was like an investment librarian. So、hmm. they would come to my department, like a girl Friday. And I used to not look corporate and dress really crazy. I cut off all my hair, dyed it all nuts. I would wear corporate, you know, up top and then combat boots on the bottom.、Um, you know, I get pulled a couple times because it was just too far. Then I, was doing then I was auditioning for theater pieces at night. At night. So、okay. I was in theater productions off Broadway. I was doing that in the evening. So I would find myself taking cat naps in the stalls of the bathroom during the day. And it was just, it was tough. It was、mm -hmm. really tough. But I was also straight out of high school making $50,000 a year. Wow. You know, and, and, and in the 90s, that's, that's really that's good money. Of, yeah, that's really good money. Yeah. So that was like an entry level, corporate entry level number. My goodness. Was, it, was there any money? So my、else? mother understood that college was, that was okay that I didn't do it because I was in You're making, was money making money without was, taking on debt. Oh, but I, <laughs> I was miserable. Hmm. 
Now, were you the only, were, were there any other women there? Were there any other black women there? Like, what was that office? Oh, I don't remember any black women. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, no, I don't remember. Yeah, there were tons of men. It was a man's world. Mm-hmm. Um, my boss was a woman, but um, there weren't a whole lot of them. You know, she, women were almost like supposed to be tucked away. Hmm. And then, you know, the guys dominated the floor. Yeah. Um, did you ever want to, like, go down I did. Path? There were people of color in the mail room. Hmm. Um, but no else. Did, did you ever have ambitions to to grow within that organization? or Because you had mentioned, like, it was a bit miserable. Was it miserable because of what you were doing or you just weren't interested in it? Yeah, I was bored. Gotcha. I just wasn't interested. I mean, it just, it was, it was, the money was great. But I realized that you don't work for money. Mm. You know, it's, it's not, you realize career versus job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a job. This is not my career. Because I wasn't passionate about it. It wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to go and see what's cooking, you know, what the, what the market is rebounding today. I can't wait to, no, it was like, you know, it was, I couldn't wait for the three, you know, five o'clock to come, nine to five. I could not wait. And um, yeah, I spent two and a half years there, which was a good, you know, which was a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. I made some friends. They, you know, they made sure I had. Oh, I started. I had a portfolio. I invested in certain things. I had ins- um, health insurance. So when I left to take on an internship, <laughs> I was way more prepared than you know the Other average people person. That, right. Yeah. I so, didn't have a trust fund, so <laughs> me leaving, you know, a salary to to do an internship. I, and I I say this because I meet people today who are mm-hmm. like, well, I read that you were that you know you you left your corporate job to become an intern. But, you know, there's context to that. And I'm going to keep bringing that word up. Um, that I had a, an amazing savings. Mm-hmm. I was still living at home with my mother. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I had one guy in my You weren't apartment. going to pay, you know, enormous rent for an apartment. Yeah, I wasn't right. living in the city. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't renting anything. I was living at home still. And so my overhead was great. I was able to really, st- you know, stop, you know, have some, my and I had a portfolio with some for, a nice four one k. I had insurance, right? I had health insurance. You realize when you start your own business how oh valuable goodness. health insurance is when you have how to pay valuable. for it on your own. And I, I, I kept that insurance company as long as they would allow me to keep it. And then when it was the time had lapsed, I picked it up and took it on for myself. But it was still way cheaper than starting, you know, mm-hmm. from scratch. And totally, it was. So important. So, you know, I always tell people when you're going to start um, your own business or you're going to freelance, like there's certain things that are that are way more important than anything else, because in order for you to have creative freedom um, and, and think about if you're thinking about generational wealth, if you're thinking about where you're going to be years from now, you're thinking about your own personal assets, you being one of them, how you use those things to benefit you when you retire what does what year is retirement for you it's not the average retirement age it should not be Hmm. but that you're paying money into your social security that you're doing all these things and most creatives if they don't have the right advisors they they don't think about those they don't think about that at all too late right you usually think about it in the moment and then you wake up and you feel like you all your creative output was in this area where you generate a lot of your income and you who knows where it went so i was very fortunate and you know i didn't have the luxury of interning with someone who was a stylist in the business. Mm-hmm. When I got into the music industry, you know, I came in as an intern. 
I didn't have, there weren't, there wasn't anyone that I worked under in the creative space. It was in the marketing space. I was mm -hmm. in the marketing department, mm -hmm. which being in that environment was super, that was a super integral part of my storytelling and how I crafted my career and how what I offered to clients was going to have all of that layered in, right? Right, right. And how I started my own business. You know, the internship was very short-lived. A lot of things happened in a very short time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was how I moved. I moved swiftly. I moved stealth. I was very focused. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have a lot of free time um, for anything. You were Family. very focused on your career at a very young age. Career. Tell me about the internship. Like, how did the internship? And this was was this was when you had switched into the music industry, right? Yeah. This internship. I how called up an old high school friend of me, a friend of mine. I called up an old high school friend of mine, and he he was um he was in, uh, working in the marketing department, and uh, I said, hey, you know, hey, what's going on? I heard you're working at a record company. I'd love to reconnect. <laughs> and he says, oh, come in. I mean, at that point, I was willing to do anything. I said, I'll get you coffee. You know, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I just got to get I out just of want this to be in, I just, right, I just want to be in the environment. I just, mm. want, to, I just want to do something different. Mm -hmm. And my mom was very concerned, obviously, because how do you tell someone you're leaving? How do you tell your mother right. you're leaving a job mm -hmm. to uh, intern for, to work for free? Like, <laughs> She's like, I don't get it. <laughs> what are you talking what? about? <laughs> yeah, like, have you, have you fallen, hurt your head? Um, <laughs> But when my mind was made up for something, you couldn't really tell me anything. It was just like, she was great because she didn't overproduce me. She kind of said, she'll just have to learn. <laughs> she'll be like, just let her go. Let her go. Because, yeah, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't let go of it. I would, I would do it until I would, you know, until I was good at it or right. I would do it until it worked. And, um, and that was just the kind of personality I had. So I said, he said, okay, come in, meet with me. And then. He said, oh, I could use some help, you know, and I was doing all kind of just odd things around the mm -hmm. office, but I was listening. Mm -hmm. so I was sitting in, a, I had a seat at the table, I was listening on meetings, I was taking notes. Mm -hmm. So when you're in those marketing meetings and you're listening to how they want to market the artists and how, you know, what those budgets look like and what they think they need and who they want to speak to and who this artist is, you start to put things together. Well, hey, who's going to dress this person? Hmm. You know, who's going to tell that story? Mm -hmm. And you know, this manager came in to the office one day. He wasn't even the manager of any artist on the label. He was just a friend of the guy that I was working for. And he had an artist that had a had a record, a single deal on another mm -hmm. record label. And a single is just said, like one, like one, one record, record and you're out. Okay. That's it. They were giving him, they were trying him out. The record okay. company was trying him out. And um, I, um, the manager was like, I really need to figure this kid's look out. You know, got to get him together. He's kind of a mess. And I was like, oh, well, I can help, you know. And he looked at me and I would come to the office very fabulous. <laughs> you know, you didn't look at me as an, as, as an intern. I didn't, you know, like I came, I remember I'm coming. First of all, I have this certain air about me too, because <laughs> I'm coming from corporate America, mm -hmm. like big glasses. I'm, you know, I know what being fabulous is all about coming mm -hmm. from a theater background. So I knew that I had to look the part. Right. You know, right. in the environment, if I wanted to be respected or Absolutely. at least if I wanted to get anyone's attention. He looked me up and down. I'll never forget this. Looked me up and down. He goes, he says, what have you, what have you done? <laughs> of course, said, that's the question. <laughs> yeah, what have you done? I said, honestly, I'm not much in this space. I said, nothing really in this space. I said, but I come from theater, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, but, you know, do you know how to work with music artists? And I was like, give me a shot. Hmm. You know, so 
I had the weekend to really, he says, well, you know, give me, he says, show me what you would do with him on Monday. And it was Friday. So you had the weekend. So I put together a presentation. Yeah. Came back, showed him. He says, okay. (laughs) See, you worked hard on this. I like, I like that. And um, he gave me a shot and that was it. Now the first music video and um, packaging I did was with Billy Woodruff. Okay. Who's now a very big director. Mm -hmm. And it was Billy's first video. It was all of our first. It was a really uh, dear publicist friend of mine, who's now a dear friend of mine, a guy by the name of Angelo Ellerby. And he, I walked into to this first job and I knew that we had two looks mm-hmm. for the job. And they said, we're just going to do two looks. Budget was, budgets were very small back then. <laughs> and I had two looks on my rack. Hmm, and he that's was it. like, that's it. Because that's all, I mean, I, didn't, I never did this before. Right, right, right. And he pulled me to the side. He said, listen, sweetie. He was like, always have options. Hmm. He says, what if this doesn't work out? I said, well, I'll fix it. He says, but what if it doesn't? He says, always have a backup plan. And that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> that was it. I it's said, okay. important. It's important, Julie, yeah. because that's a lesson, right? Because yeah. sometimes we, it's not sometimes, a lot of times you only get one shot. That's right. Right? And so you, right. you come in there and, and you only and, had that. <laughs> things, there were some things that weren't right, mm-hmm. and but I did not panic. I recognized that they could smell fear. Mm. And I learned not showing fear because I was in the room watching a music industry that was very male dominant, how they would, I, I, I would see how they would intimidate and, and put fear. And when you show them that you, that how they would take advantage. So there was all these little things I'd picked up along the way. So I said, you know what? No problem. This isn't working out. Let me fix it. Right. I didn't panic. I was calm. I said, I take responsibility. You know, but give me a second. Mm-hmm. I won't, you know, I'll do what I can. And I quickly fixed it. Then as I started really understanding the dynamics of how this business works, and I had to learn that quickly, mm. I was like, I can't keep spending the budget on clothes this way. I had to figure oh. out where clothes came from before. I started diving into, so you know, you, you were saying fashion houses. And okay, okay. I couldn't go, I couldn't just go to shopping. Because you were artists. paying retail and that was just taking up. That's right. right. Take, that okay. would take up all the money. Okay. So I had to start to structure the budget structure how what how are we going how how are we going to do this so <laughs> You're i like, cuz i need more money. i can't this is this is limiting how can i get more with what i have right so i dove in and then i was very fascinated by as you start looking at like you know photography and cinematography which is different from theater mm-hmm. started reading all these books edith head these costume designer books on you know lighting and how important it is to you know what transfers better for black and white. I just the theory of costume design and filmmaking and stuff. And I I was a student of that. Mm. So that whenever I worked on music videos or anything that I was getting or editorial or whatever, mm-hmm. everything is so different. And I always tell people, well, what aspect of styling do you want to get into? Mm. And then recognizing that styling was different from costume design. Mm. But the way I approached styling was from, I approached it as a costume designer. So okay. there immediately made me very unique because mm. you were thinking through the in, character lens right mm. exactly and i was also thinking through the dp lens ah you know through the director of photography how is he going to shoot this you know how is it going to transfer what's going to make it you know magical mm-hmm. and then also you know how i could change the narrative of this particular genre it was a white space in hip-hop there mm. was no one dressing or even developing hip hop culture. Hmm. You would develop R and B culture, you mm-hmm. would develop, you know, 
pop soul, all those things were being developed. Mm-hmm. Hip hop culture was just supposed to be like rock and roll, raw, huh. you know, as is, black and white. You know, it was just that kind of, you know, musical genre. Right. It's like, but you saw a different vision. I saw, I saw <laughs> an opportunity to change that narrative. Mm. to to be the voice of that to develop these characters within mm-hmm. the character of their storytelling right because their storytelling when you think about the history of hip-hop and i grew up in the south bronx so i grew up where hip-hop was born right you know and early early hip-hop they were quite eccentric shirts <laughs> off tight jeans pants you know it was very it was very it's very sexy mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere along the way it, got, it started to it started to get really grimy and yeah. it started to get really dark and it started to get very intimidating to pop culture mm. then we had to kind of change that dialogue and mm-hmm. kind of make hip-hop hip-hop culture and how are we going to do that right? mm. and you start to collaborate with other not just artists but other creatives directors mm. hair makeup and you start to but in the middle in the midst of all while all this was happening I had made, I was making friends at design houses. Right. I had, I had, before my company started to take off and, you know, kind of blew up or whatever, I took a marketing position at Cross Colors and Croc and I, which was one of the <laughs> first black um, urban lines to exist. Mm-hmm. This was before FUBU, it's kind of around the time. Um, they were one of the fastest growing urban black businesses. And people know, knew it from the color, the very rich, saturated color brush suede, ultra suede, oversized baggy jeans. Yeah. Just brilliance of seeing hip hop culture in color mm. was a big deal. Mm-hmm. You saw crisscross, you saw TLC, you just saw this just beautiful, magical, um, colorful, um, but baggy silhouettes happening <laughs> in, this, in this space. Right. And I met the owners um, while looking for designer showrooms. Mm. I ran into the owners one day. We got into this three hour conversation and then they, somehow offered me a job <laughs> oh wow you know they needed someone on the east coast they had all their marketing and and all their creative on the marketing in the east side so i started buying all their outdoor advertising producing all their fashion shows doing all their product placement just out of um, nowhere oh my goodness because i i said the right things to them i understood what they were doing and i warned them mm-hmm. how oversaturating you know people want what they can't have and mm-hmm. this is not done strategically again from being in the room and listening to music notes. Right. What was music happening at Uptown. Music industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, looking at Puffy, how he, you know, he would have stacks of collecciones, fashion magazines on his desk. And, <laughs> you know, he was very inspired by, you know, he, you know, he was a very big fan of artist development. He mm. was, and he was also very like hands-on, you know, mm-hmm. this was like, and just watching all of his, his, you know, his tenaciousness, his energy, his fire. You know, I, you know, you, you know that it's okay to be the female version of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At least I thought it was okay to do. Like, <laughs> she's a she's a bossy little five foot two something. You know, but it, it, it's it's an energy. It's a it's an environment that requires yeah. that in order to be able to navigate and, and to to elevate in that environment. One thing yeah. I want to ask you about is you you you're evolving and you're making all these different relationships. You're coming up with creative solutions to be able to get more with these certain budgets. One thing that was interesting was uh, I know that you had um, started to work with Jay Z um, mm-hmm. right at a, at a very early point. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his career. I worked with Jay-Z before he was an artist. Before he was an artist. Tell yes. me, tell us a little bit about what that was. Because like, he had a record label. Okay. Yeah. He had a record label with Damon Dash and they had artists. So they hired me to work on the artist first. 
And then Jay became an artist while being an executive first. People have been saying he was an executive first. Hmm. I remember driving him over the Brooklyn Bridge in my forerunner, you know, before he was in. That, and they used to have a, an office down in a Wall Street area. So they were like moguls. Yeah. You know, they were business yeah. guys first. And um, yeah, so I, I worked with him from inception. When we come back, June works with Hype Williams to create some of hip-hop's most iconic visuals and looks. For this week's 99 Days of Design feature, let's hear from Mariana Shepard, founder of Mariana Shepard Studio. As she prepares for what's next, Mariana shares her experience working with 99 Designs to reimagine her brand identity. My name is Mariana Shepard, and I'm the owner of uh, Mariana Shepard Studio. My work is chiefly uh, in photography. My imagery sort of ebbs and flows between street and commercial with a little bit of conceptual here and there. I have a passion for storytelling and I really like to lean into that with my photography. Uh, I like for my subjects to be part of a story. I've been shooting since I was about 16 years old and my dad was the one to actually introduce me to the medium. And I've been shooting professionally for about a little over a decade. My business started uh, pretty much organically. I'm the go-to photographer amongst my friends and family. So when folks would ask them for recommendations for photographers, they would just send them over my way. Uh, This was way before IG, so finding a decent photographer wasn't the easiest of tasks. And to that same end, I didn't really see a lot of Black women photographers creating work professionally. But that isn't to say that they didn't exist at the times. It just didn't come, I didn't come across many. Uh, so I really moved into creating my business because I saw that need and I wanted to fill it. At the beginning of the pandemic, I put the majority of my shooting on pause, mainly for safety reasons. There were so many unknowns and I really didn't feel comfortable being out uh, shooting. And I really didn't want to put my clients in compromising situations. But a few months in, I restarted working, uh, picked up some commercial work that really allowed me to work safely within my studio space. So that was really great. Uh, all in all, it's been it's been kind of slow. Uh, the clients are fewer and the nature of the work has definitely shifted in more studio work. Um, but I see that it's slowly sort of creeping back up. I'm really looking forward to the expansion of my business. And I have to say, working with 99designs has sort of um, reinforced that need for me to expand my portfolio and think about sort of long term what I want the photography part of my business to evolve into. Um, hence me changing the name from Mariana Shepherd Photography to Mariana Shepherd Studio. And I actually didn't get that idea until I began the process with 99 Designs. I wasn't really thinking too deeply about my visual identity, much less what I want the business to look like in the future, because I'm so tied into the day-to-day that I don't have the space, time, or energy to think about the future. Um, So... It, it really like sort of put me into this mental space of thinking about like, how do I expand it? Because like my own desires have changed. Like I like taking pictures of cakes and that doesn't mix well with street photography. <laughs> so it's like, how do I, how can I be all these things within my brand 
and still have a brand that represents me and all of the variations of what I can offer. The whole process has just been so exciting uh, because for starters, like I wasn't thinking about what goes into brand identity in terms of colors and textures and the movement of uh, text. I like text-based designs. And so it really forced me to think through what or how those elements tie into what people think about when they see my logo. I mean, they have so many talented designers that is the beginning process was a bit overwhelming. Um, but as I sort of got more comfortable and found a rhythm to the process, uh, I was able to give direction and feedback in a way that was useful for them and for what it is that I ultimately wanted. We just finalized my uh, my logo, and I'm so excited about it. I absolutely love it. Um, I literally told my designer, I love it and you, uh, <laughs> because I was just so excited just to see how far we've gotten from like just the initial brief to the final product. Um, but all in all, it was just a really fun, exciting, um, wonderful experience to go through. I want to put the money toward a creative studio. And what I mean by that, I have a traditional home studio with, you know, the typical backdrop stands, camera lenses, cameras, things like that. But because I've expanded how I'm thinking about my brand, I want my studio to be able to reflect that. So what that means is purchasing things like equipment. Um, like I said, I'm interested in food photography, things so that I can properly capture food photography, all of the elements so that I can be able to produce on a level that matches where it is that I want to go with my business. That was Mariana Shepard, founder of Mariana Shepard Studio. Learn more about 99 Days of Design, a 99 Designs by Vistaprint initiative at news.vistaprint.com. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to Claim of Stories. So it's the early 90s, and June is working with Jay-Z on the Fillin' It video. Well, his first suit I designed because Giorgio Armani hadn't yet hmm. opened the doors. No fashion houses hadn't yet opened the doors. Yeah. Slow process. And I wanted, we were doing, I think it was the Feeling It video, and then Can't Knock the Hustle, all those wow. things started to come. But I remember we were going to Jamaica to shoot this video, and I wanted like this bright linen yellow suit, and obviously that didn't exist. So <laughs> I remember finding the sourcing the fabric, and then... Finding a tailor, you know, to to cut, you know, cut and make the pattern for me, and I wanted a very soft shoulder like Armani because mm -hmm. here you are, you know, this character, this young man, wasn't a suit wearer, mm -hmm. but um, to put him in, in a strong shoulder wouldn't really make sense. He didn't even really, at the time, you know, didn't even have the posture for a strong shoulder. So in order to really kind of, so you know, give him something that felt very relaxed, mm. I kind of went after that. Italian shoulder, mm. that soft shoulder. So just understanding, knowing all those nuances, I approached it in that way, you know, from a clinical place. Mm -hmm. How do I allow him to still feel swagged out, but still have this suited, you know, um, baller kind of look. And right. He, you know, he had the scarf around his neck, the shirt was open. <laughs> it was very kind of Italian mob boss mm -hmm. going to, you know, Jamaica. But the color was so vibrant, mm -hmm. you know, and hip-hop wasn't necessarily that just yet right right so it was, all of that was so by the time we did can't knock the hustle 
you know, I thought it was really important. I didn't have to knock on the designer doors, mm-hmm. but I thought it was important that they knew who we were, that mm. we were able to collaborate, mm. and that we were able to say that we, you know, we're wearing this Italian, you know, Italian-made suit. Right. And it, it should have been enough. My bespoke moment should have been enough. Black designer. But I thought it was important because it gave us more visibility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, culturally, I thought it was important that that particular culture was able. It's almost like being able to buy a Birkin. You know, <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know, I can afford a designer piece. Right. 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 The cachet had a little bit more, had a little bit more cachet. And I remember when we first got it and we, it was a designer by the name of Todd Oldham that was somewhere like at the time he was a premier designer Todd Oldham mm. and he loved black culture so you had these allies who you know were actually willing yes to and, invest yeah, and be involved you had a lot of, nose. You had a lot mm. of racist nose mm. but it didn't matter because it was like we were in control of the narrative anyway we didn't have to ask for permission mm. matter of fact I never asked for permission mm. I never asked you know for creative license to what we were going to do um you know it's how you talk about with Missy Elliott we didn't have to ask for permission. There, were, mm. there was no blueprint to any of the things. When I met with when I met Hype Williams, it was as if two creative spirits had was separated at birth and, had, <laughs> and came back together. <laughs> and came back together. That was he was my brother from inception. Mm. Um, he was painting sets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't yet um, even a director. He was making his way up. But right. So, but, you know, people looked out for each other. We looked out Mm -hmm. for, you know, once we became a family, Mm -hmm. it was like all or nothing. (laughs) You got to, you got to rock with both of us. (laughs) Tell me about, tell me about this, this kind of partnership with Hype, right? Because you two are going to work on dozens of incredible films of art. Right, I don't even want to yeah. like label them music videos. These, these are art. Like they were are, many films. Like, I love these are films, and I appreciate that. you know, you talk about Missy Elliott, and I think of, I, I, you know, the rain, and I think of Socket to me. Um, you know, both of those videos really push things right in an era where fashion for women and women in music was very sexualized. Here we oh, have yeah, they, Missy yeah. Elliott and. You take her to this different dimension. What, where did that come from? How did that conversation happen? How did you start to contextualize? I mean, they, you know, women were being objectified, like it was. That's just it was like a brothel everywhere. You know, it's just how it was. Unless you were like MC Light or Queen Latifah, and you were like that kind of music. But Missy's lyrics were very provocative. If you look, if you think, listen back to her lyrics, you know. They were very provocative lyrics. So it was, it would have been too obvious to do that. And first of all, it's just, just not who she is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I remember Hype being really excited. He's like, I got, you know, he, he listens to the music and he, then he goes in. So for <laughs> him, it's the music first. And so we take different approaches. And I actually don't want to listen to the music first because I want, I don't want that to taint, huh. taint me. I want to meet the character first, the person first. So you would meet the person first before you'd even... I would speak to either the label or them first, hear what they have to say. Then it was always interesting to hear what the artist has to say. And there would be always so such a different experience. (laughs) And then the music is like third, you Mm -hmm. know, the treatments and stuff come after. But I have to know, it's such an intimate um, 
job, such an intimate, personal relationship that you develop mm -hmm. from the beginning. And it has to be this level of trust. Mm -hmm. And I remember Sylvia Rome, Hype and I going in to meet with Sylvia Rome and Missy. We're in this big conference room. And she's just like, this is the most incredible artist you'll ever meet. I'm gonna, she was just like, she's gonna be the biggest thing. Hmm. And and I was like so curious to, to know why she felt that way. <laughs> and Missy was super soft-spoken, super timid, girl from Virginia, but a lot of swag. Um, and she teases me and says all the time, she said, girl, you were talking so much smack to me when I met you. She was, like, you out. she was like, I was like, this girl is wild. You know, Missy would say she is bugging because yeah. I was so, you know, again, like I'm, we're, you know, two petite women. And I was just, but I was fearless. Mm. You know, I was just so naturally, I, I, I was so excited. I was like the female version of hype. I was just like, <laughs> it's going to be like, and, you know, we decided collectively that we were going to create this complete dichotomy of the lyrical content. Hmm. We were going to create this alternate universe that Missy Elliott, not Melissa Elliott, lived in. Wow. And she, she, you know, she got it. She got it. And she trusted us very early. But I also recognized the responsibility that I had. Mm. You know, her image, her likeness, her everything. This was her big right. shot. She was a writer, producer, and this was her coming out. Mm -hmm. You know, her and Timbaland, it was a big deal for both of them. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I didn't take that for granted. I, you know, I recognize what a huge responsibility that was. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very excited to be able to collaborate with them and help her to, and the thing is, she had never been out, so we could we didn't have a point of reference. We didn't have to reinvent. We didn't have right, to. Right, no. Like, we this was starting fresh. from scratch. This is a canvas, right? The and sound was new mm -hmm. also. We had never heard music like that before. The collaboration of singing and rapping. Yeah, Lauren Hill came after, but this was so new. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we had, it was from that moment on, we were just <laughs> inseparable. How we did... were having so much fun, you know. We giggled, we laughed. We, yeah. You know, we approached everything with, open mind and enthusiasm and I think that was super important what did did you know that uh, I, I know you had an inkling right because the, there were conversations you're like yeah, yeah Missy's going to be huge but did you know like it was going to take yeah, off everybody the way, says that right like everybody <laughs> says that but did you have like just this gut feeling that you were like this is going to be insane oh I knew she was a star hmm. yeah she had that and I can say that very confidently now because I've met so many artists over my career right you know pushing on a 30-year career it's like i know she, she you know the stars when you meet them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know who's going to have catalog and longevity you know and who's not willing to compromise and who has integrity and she was one of those people yeah that's incredible she is, she is one of those people. she is one of those people i think yeah. one of the the Buster Rhymes, same thing same, the, yeah. the body of you know not and, I did every last one of Missy's music videos in her career. I think I might not have done three of them in her entire career. Wow. <laughs> what is, that's incredible. Yeah. Like for, for collaborators to be able to stay connected over that amount of time as you yeah. both grow creatively, right? Because sometimes yeah, it's natural. Yeah, there was a time we didn't work together. Mm -hmm. She did, you know, mm -hmm. there was a time we didn't. But it was when we did get back, it was almost as if like, we didn't miss a day and, and something was missing before. Right. 
you know, right. like we both needed to go and experience other things to come back. Um, and then, you know, came back with a nice, fresh, new perspective and <laughs> admiration and level of respect. And it was good. It's, it's like any relationship, you know, sometimes you have to step away from it. Totally. Totally. One thing that, that I, I love about this story with you and Missy is the story of artists and brand partnerships, right? Like if we think about right now, we're in the era where that's not so uncommon anymore. But at the point when you all form this collaboration partnership with Adidas, that wasn't a normal thing. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you share a little bit about the forming of that and how that partnership came together and, and what you yeah. were hoping to accomplish? Um, absolutely. You know, that partnership came from me disrupting their classics. Mm. What, you know, drawing my own interpretation, us, you know, reinventing it, reimagining it, taking creative license and tricking it out and um, making it applicable to a performance piece. And, you know, and I, I went to them, it was just after a certain point, it was just like, this is beyond free advertising. <laughs> what, what, this is this is crazy. I said to you know, to the marketing person, I was like, you should do a deal with us. I mean, look at what we're doing for your brand. Mm -hmm. Look at what we're doing. And Missy was the face of it. Missy was the muse. She was, and I was, you know, behind the scenes. That was the job. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That was the role as a creative director. Your role is not consumer facing. Mm -hmm. It's company facing. Mm -hmm. Um, and things have changed tremendously mm -hmm. with those roles and how they've evolved. Um, but you know, my role as a, as a costume designer, as a stylist wasn't about, was not consumer facing, mm -hmm. but in my opinion, it was about positioning mm -hmm. and it was about, um, being able to have this authoritative, um, position within a big company, right, was super an important part for me. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the relationship I have now with Puma, it, it makes sense. Right. And I get to have best of both worlds because as the years have evolved, like I think that was the blueprint, us starting that relationship. That relationship with, to evolve. Was the blueprint the, for mm -hmm. what you see now for mm -hmm. the, for, with Pharrell, with Rihanna, with every collaborative deal you've seen. Mm -hmm. We were able to show brands not only how music, hip hop culture impacts mainstream America, how it impacts consumers and retail, and we have consumer buying power. Mm. And we, you know, it, it changed everything. It changed the dynamic of every relationship. Completely. I was okay taking that role mm -hmm. then. That's what I signed up for. Right. You know, I didn't go into this business to be famous. Right. I went in because I was passionate about storytelling. I was passionate about changing the narrative. It was more for me, for people to see our culture as being the number one genre, not the alternative genre. And, you know, look, look where we are now. It was Number important one. that not just BET <laughs> played our music, mm -hmm. but that VH1 and MTV. And that those were very segregated channels of distribution then, if you really think about it. Absolutely. BET was formed because they, were, they wouldn't play you know, it. Those other, Viacom wasn't playing black music. Right. Right. That's why it existed. 
why Essence and all of these, you know, black, you know, publications and outlets exist because there was no inclusivity. Mm-mm. Absolutely. So I recognized the power of that, you know, and I and we flipped it on its side, you know, upside on its head. I and love we, what you said about not you didn't get into this because you were trying to be famous. Right. And I think so many times it's easy to get caught up in the, the glamour of things. Right. Yeah. Uh, Social media is like the biggest. <laughs> it's the biggest. <laughs> it's the biggest. It's I want to ask you, how do you. How did you start to think about yourself as a brand, right? Because I think it's it's not something that you may have necessarily pursued at, at once, but it is something that has your name has started to continue to grow, and it's also led to these partnerships that you that we're going to get into. But like, yeah, did you was that ever a conscious thing? Yeah, from when I was very early, early as a child, I recognized the power of my voice, my spirit. Mm. how infectious joy is, how it could be your calling card. Mm -hmm. And I was always a joyful, you know, young lady, precocious child. Mm -hmm. And I recognized there's value in that, right? I was able to achieve things based off of that. And I never let that go. Mm -hmm. So I bought that same, I I always say I have a Peter Pan mentality (laughs) because I'm always, people always ask you, oh, what would the, you know, what would you, the younger self tell, tell yourself now? And I say, no, I always ask my younger self as an adult what mm-hmm. to do, because it was the younger self that had this, you know, fearless spirit that didn't think there was anything that she couldn't do. And I don't want to lose that. You know, I, I want to reinvent myself time and time again with the child that I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, there's, there's something magical in that. And I recognize that you can package that. You can sell that, mm. um, that people want to be around that. And um, and I recognized that that ha- there was there was power in that. Yeah. And, 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 and as a brand, I, I never did things that compromised myself, mm-hmm. my integrity. I did things that felt true to my brand, true to myself. And my brand being is the person that my mother raised me to be. Mm-hmm. And we only started giving it a name. We just started calling it brand. You know, <laughs> this is new. We didn't know this what that is new. meant. Right. Right. But we knew what integrity meant. Mm. We knew what we knew what how to make sure that, you know, that something doesn't come back and bite you. Before social media, we had karma, we mm-hmm. had integrity, we had as you're as good as your last job, you know, where it was important that you left every relationship intact because mm. you never know where that assistant or intern was gonna end up finding their way to and be in a position to work with you or not work with right, you. Right, 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 totally. So <laughs> I treated everyone with the utmost respect. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to make sure if there was a misunderstanding that it got resolved, mm-hmm. that if I did something to offend, that you knew that it was blame it on my, you know, on my mind, not my heart. <laughs> um, and that, you know, yeah, and it was important. And because of, so that is what we call brand building. Okay. Understanding how important it is to keep what people know you for right. intact. Right. 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 Um, so th- that's so- our asset. That's one of our biggest assets. And we don't talk about it enough, but I talk about it with my teenagers and I tell them, you know, it's important that people see you hmm. and that you see yourself. Right. And you don't see yourself through, the, through, their, through their eyes, but you see them through your own. Through your own. That's My your goodness. superpower. That's, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it's, you know, incredible advice to, to receive at such a young age. 
because you, mm-hmm. you don't receive it, you know, and next thing you know, you're down in your career and it's like, what happened? Right. Um, but speaking of, uh, I know you have this incredible partnership with Puma now. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you tell us about uh, this partnership and, and why you're so excited about it? And you're working with, uh, you know, friends from quite a long yeah. time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, That's what makes it just honestly even even more of a fulfilling full circle aha moment, you know, because mm-hmm. there's nothing that I can't express to, you know, to Jay-Z, to Emery Jones, his partner, about the things, my dreams and aspirations. They've shared the, you know, he shared his with me all over the years as we developed his character from musician to business mogul back to musician and, mm-hmm. you know, pop culture icon and you know, to be able to say to them, this is what I want the next phase of my career to look like. Wow. This is how I see it. This mm-hmm. is what I feel like I've worked and earned and deserved. And you have to think about, the, you know, the partners, you know, a lot of these brands are used to doing partnerships with um, celebrities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Artists. And, you know, when you are able to sit down with a company like Puma and, and they see you, is just as valuable of an asset as an artist because I've always seen myself as an artist. I've always said right. I've collaborated with other mm-hmm. artists over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even when I was in the driver's seat, I never took credit. I've always used it as a collaborative experience, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what I signed up for. Right. And um, there's a there's a in the job is designed for you to be the wizard. You know, <laughs> it, it, now if the wizard is discovered, it's discovered by you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the person that wants it to be discovered. You know, think about it. Hmm. The wizard was discovered. You know, she followed that yellow brick road, and <laughs> but she was the star, mm. and she felt it was important that other people knew that she wasn't totally that. Other people had power and exactly. contribution into the mm-hmm. magical things that happened. That's how the celebration of June Ambrose's contribution mm. came about. And because of that, and there were things that I did along the way. It was important that for me that I became an author, mm-hmm. that I that I lent my voice to consumers and not just celebrities, mm-hmm. so that this book came from a place of authority and that a big publishing house published me, that I was able to do television shows that I starred in and that I was able to executive produce those things and be part of the production of those things so that that narrative of who I am mm-hmm. was preserved, the integrity right. of who, of that, that asset, mm-hmm. you know, the asset that my mother delivered, that she worked really hard for. I'm keeping, you know, I'm protecting that asset. Okay. You know, I'm one of her biggest, you know, con- contributions to the world, right? So um, it was important that I protected that. And all of those things along the way gave me consumer awareness, mm. you know, doing things and bringing product to the marketplace, bearing my name in different categories, mm-hmm. working with HSN, mm-hmm. an eyewear collection, sweatshirts and t-shirt collection. All of those things brought along consumer awareness. So now here I am working with, um, you know, Puma as a creative director, right? starting off company facing and really working within the company to to launch their first women's hoops basketball collection. Mm-hmm. And you really, utilize, really use that opportunity to shed light on a number of, of 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 issues that we feel that need to be addressed, especially women women in, in basketball, mm-hmm. um, uh, gap you know um, gender gap disparities, 
you know, you have, I mean, there's so many things, there's racial disparities, there's all, you know, women, you know, being able to leverage this opportunity to create a platform that we can talk openly about this and celebrate their contribution and not just see them as athletes, like the collection, the first collection that we're dropping. Yeah, they're women. Like, you know, off the court, this is who they are. Mm -hmm. And that they're seen as more than just a basketball player. Right. I mean, the WNBA has been incredible, but also how the these women and athletes are so outspoken about things like police brutality and, and Black Lives Matter. I wanted to ask you, um, what have been some of your influences as you think about this collection that's going to come to to market first in November? What what's been some of the things that have been influencing the direction? Yeah, um, I think uh, giving you know the collection is inspired by like greatness and um, you know women feeling empowered through sports. Mm. You know, I think style is a sport. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's um, it's one of those kind of it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Sometimes it takes you a while to get there, but but also like just creating something that's very kind of like iconic and that has the in, same integrity um, and precocious spirit of, of, of the athlete, mm. you know, inspired by, you know, a, this really amazing rare bird in the Amazon that I found, but then the lines of a court, you know, taking those lines and implementing those into design and just also like, you know, giving, creating something to celebrate hmm. them, mm-hmm. you know, their contribution. Um, and the fact that the company, the brand recognizes that, you know, um, women in basketball is, is a growing asset and commodity. Absolutely. And through that vehicle, you know, like you said, social justice and all of those things, we're going to lean on all of those voices to be seen, to be heard. You know, it's, I took a Title IX approach to this. Mm. When I first started putting this collection together on my boards, there was Title IX. I had to really kind of create a DNA for, you know, because this is a division. This is, this is, yeah, you have men's mm-hmm. basketball for Puma, but you didn't have anything for women. Right. So giving her an identity, mm. giving her a voice. Mm. And I thought Title IX had, there was so many amazing things layered into that contribution. That bill was so important because we then get to follow up and, 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 and hold them, hold their foot to the fire and right. hold them accountable. Right. Have them continue to support and back and facilitate, you know, not just create this collection as a collaboration, hit it and go. Mm-hmm. I said I really wasn't interested in doing that. I really wanted to build a relationship mm-hmm. with a brand that I can grow as well mm-hmm. and strategically decide when we were going to launch the June Ambrose times Puma, which we have made those decisions as of. But, you know, doing it in the right, setting it up so that there is some longevity so that we, you know, this is not one of those collaborative conversations that was like, oh, this was a great job. Right. And, and then, then it's, it is over. But, yeah. It's and here's this customer. I want to I want to meet her. Mm. I want her to trust me. I want to grow with her. I want her to know that, you know, she could trust me in more ways than one, that it's style by design, that I'm thinking about all of those things that, you know, that a woman thinks about when she is either in physically fit or not. <laughs> if she's under construction, if she's, you know, she's trying to, you know, she needs to glamouflage, you know, something. Absolutely. You know, and if she needs to feel empowered through clothes, mm. like what is that, you know, what is that, you know, the where, when, and why is a super factor for me. Wow. 
So I thought about all, all of those things as I, as I was developing the collection. Had, uh, so as we've been over, you know, COVID and a pandemic, um, obviously creating collections is very different uh, than, than, it was. than it was. How, how, how has that impacted your, your process here? I mean, everything is so virtual, it's painful. <laughs> and it also is a little bit more time consuming because you have to wait for samples to come, you have to wait for swatches to come, you can see things through, you know, you have to, there's a lot of, a lot of screen time mm -hmm. um, at the height of it. Now, you know, it's a little bit looser, but then I was doing virtual 10, 12 hour fittings. Oh, wow. With models. And that very difficult because I'm very hands-on. I like to touch, mm -hmm. feel, pull. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have my set of samples here, but still I wouldn't have the model. You know, right. and I would literally be doing these virtual, you know, three and four virtual fittings. So that part was a challenge. Um, and then waiting for color transfers and actual waiting for the actual physical material because it doesn't transfer via, you know, the camera. Right, no, absolutely. It looks completely different <laughs> in person. Communicating with overseas and then it's like, you, it looks one color then, you get the wash in, it's something else. And, you know, and, and for me, details and textiling and trims and all of those things were a big part of how I wanted to develop this mm -hmm. collection as well. Mm -hmm. So I paid a different type of attention than, you know, because I really want Puma to be a brand that you look at not just for performance, mm -hmm. but for, for style and it becomes part of your lifestyle. And the timing couldn't be any more great as sportswear and leisure is at the forefront of everybody's life. Everyone's. <laughs> and I don't think that we're going to abandon you know, that concept neither. I think that you're just going to layer it into your everyday life even even more so. And when you think about sizing, is the sizing going to be catered towards women or it be it's unisex inclusive. or be inclusive? Okay. There are some pieces that are uh, gender binary. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're inclusive. Some, you know, there are pieces that you, we will see guys in for sure. I'm selfishly just um, trying to make sure I got, you know. I no, you're good. <laughs> you're, you're, you're good for a seating on the seating list. I already picked out your pieces. Yeah. June. I think you. I think you're really gonna love it. Uh, I really. Do. I'm, I'm so really excited. proud of what we were able to develop. I'm yeah. so excited to see really this. Really excited. Um, so yeah. and I get to coach it publicly, and it's yeah. great because you know. You know, it's it's like when a designer delivers a collection, you know, yeah, you see them come out at the runway at the end, but this is a different dynamic. Um, and I get to really be the face of it in, in, in a in a non-direct consumer facing way, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Totally. Consumers will know that I'm co I was, I've coached it and I, you know, built this league of its own and it is a league of its own. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, that's what, you know, I want to be able to have that starting lineup and then have all those allies come along and everybody fill that arena and continue to support and grow with this. This is going to be an incredible launch. We can't wait to, to see it come Thank to you. life. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you before, before we end here was, as you think on your career and you think where your career is headed and uh, maybe even thinking about some of our young listeners that are with us mm -hmm. uh, today, what advice would you have for young creatives um, as they think about growing their brand and even entrepreneurial mm -hmm. ideas? What advice would you have for them on their journey? Um, trust your voice. You know, um, it. this is not a hobby. Mm. It's one of those things, if you're going to be successful at it, you're going to have to embrace it and love it and nurture it and grow it um, and contribute to it every single day. Um, it, you know, it's a seed you plant it and it manifests and it bears fruit, fruit, but it comes from your labor. So know that anything, you know, whatever path you're pursuing, that it's going to come with tremendous hard work 
it will have disappointments, but you know, you will stumble and you make those part of the dance. Um, and, but, but trust your, trust yourself, give yourself grace for things that don't work out. Don't panic when things don't, um, and, and have, and, and also just have something else that can support your creative talents in terms of financially. If there's something mm. that you can do that can allow you to a little bit more creative freedom before that creativity can, and I know this sounds, it sounds convoluted, but I, you know, it's, it's whatever it is that your side hustle is mm. that can allow you to be creatively free. It helps. It's like actors, actors bartend so that they can, you know, take auditions and roles. And just because the climate is, there are a lot of creatives that you're competing against now. Mm -hmm. And I want you to think about what makes you so special. Mm -hmm. Not wait for someone else to tell you, but go into it knowing what you have, what you are built on, like what you are worthy of, what you you know that you that you have that can change the world and contribute contribute that every day. Know that that is one of your finest and biggest assets. And take care of yourself. Preserve yourself. You know, don't abuse your body. Hmm. Take time and um, know that, you know, because it's a very um, physical and emotional and mental, you know, career. And I want you to just take time to care for yourself because you're going to be caring for others along the way. That was June Ambrose, the fashion architect of hip hop. Find out more about June and get access to all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo. Original music, production, and scoring by Adrian Anaya. Original music by Danny Castillo, Kinsley Barricatro, Orlando Kennedy, Melanie Jag, and vocals provided by Rosella. And special thanks also to VDOT, Professor H, Jordan Dinwiddie, Nick Pop, and Lily Lynn. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claim Us Stories.